Welcome, everyone. Anyone here for the very first time? For those of you who are here for the first time, uh, have you done some form of meditation or is there some familiarity with insight meditation? If not, could you raise your hand? It's not a stigma, it's just I need, it's helpful for me to know. So you've all, everyone has had some exposure to it. Um, how many people, there have been four talks on this theme so far. Uh, how many people have been uh, to at least one of them? Helpful, better than make it easier on me. Uh, what I'm attempting to do in this series is to uh, move through uh, reflections and ways of practice with aging, sickness, and death. Uh, from the point of view of the Buddha's teaching. And I've started at the beginning, and uh, because there's, a, of course, a gap in continuity, different people come at different times, uh, what I'm trying to do is a brief review each time. Uh, obviously, it has to be quite brief. And I hope that each talk can be self-sufficient in its own way, but if there's some things that are puzzling, that perhaps required some uh, exposure earlier on. If you can stay for the question period, then we can straighten it out then. The talks are aimed at, uh, at people who do this or related meditation practices. If you uh, are really very, very new or not sure you're uh, interested in this form of meditation, uh, you're still welcome. It's something that you're trying to, you're shopping in a way, you're trying to find out what is of value for you or what you should pursue. Uh, but finally, uh, it isn't a kind of generalized statement because although some of what's said I'm sure will be, be of some relevance for any human being, uh, it, there really is the necessity that you have a practice to be able to do some of what's being talked about here. I mean, it, uh, otherwise, you'll just think about it, or uh, you won't be able to make contact with it at all. You won't be able to, to carry it out. It's, it's about something uh, to actually do about our situation. Whether we like it or not, each one of us is aging. Is that true? I think so. Okay. Um, the format that I'm using uses the story that's perhaps part legend, part myth, perhaps fact, I don't know, perhaps none of us will ever know, uh, of how the Buddha stepped forward and left the palace. And in its own way, what's being uh, suggested is that we have to leave the palace. You don't have to, but to accomplish what's being talked about here today, you have to leave uh, the palace. Here, of course, not meaning literally a palace, although I think the conditions in our country, for many of us, uh, are comparable to that kind of living. Uh, as probably most of you know, the Buddha was shielded uh, from aging, sickness, and death because uh, he had heard that his son was either going to be a great king, his father was a king, 
great ruler, or he was going to be a spiritual leader, and his father didn't want him to be a spiritual leader, because he would just, you know, what good is that? He wanted someone to follow in his own footsteps. And so he tried to control the Buddha's life as best as he could uh, to, to spare him any harshness, because it's the harshness that can open a person up to spiritual values and to pursue uh, a meditative or contemplative life. As we also know, it failed. The Buddha, in turn, discovered an old person as he left the palace. It was quite a shock. He found out that he was not exempt from that condition. A sick person, a corpse. And then finally, what we can call a yogi or a meditator, or a contemplative, a practitioner, someone who uh, was sitting under a tree and quite serene. And he wanted, that's the direction he wanted to go. And uh, I've been following that sequence. So our, our first, uh, uh, the first challenge that we receive is of aging. And we've, some, uh, a fair amount has been said about it already. If you recall, those of you here last time, we left off uh, with my own humiliation. Many of you were here. Not really, but it was very, very helpful for me uh, to get on a, uh, the tee at, at Brookline and uh, with there being, being no seats and for a young woman to get up and give me her seat. Uh, and the reason she did is because she perceived me as somebody who needed a seat. Uh, and, and after realizing that she wasn't just being kind and she wasn't going to get off in a stop or two, but that she saw me as an old fogey, uh, my mind went through what you could safely call some kind of suffering. Okay. So uh, what was shattered were certain images that I didn't even know I had. Those of you here remember it. And I'd like to give you a few more uh, concrete examples of this, because what, what is being suggested is that this is a practice. It's something that can become uh, an integral part of our vipassana meditation practice, uh, or any practice that you're doing that has awareness in it and a motivation to, to know yourself. Uh, Ajahn Lee, who was a, a master in the Thai forest tradition, uh, once said that if people realized how precious aging, sickness, and death was from a spiritual point of view, if it were personified, they would bow down to it every day of their life. Well, I hope we can explain at least a little of that this evening. Uh, why is that precious? To get old, sick, and die. It doesn't sound so hot to me, you may be thinking. Okay, so we have one rather ordinary event. and Let me give you a few more, and then let's look more deeply into them and see if we can understand what's going on. Small stuff. A young woman uh, I know uh, was part of a, a dinner party a few years ago. A bunch of us out at a restaurant. She was about, I don't know, 27, 28, 26. And the waiter referred to her as ma'am. And for the entire evening, she was just thrown off course. Ma'am, ma'am, what do you mean ma'am? What am I, I'm not a ma'am yet. What's he rushing me for? I'm not a ma'am. You know, and then she'd be quiet, and then it would start in again. Okay. Uh, was it suffering? Sure. Enormous suffering? No. 
But something happened there. Something was, some button was pushed. Someone from the center coming into an interview. And uh, with sadness etched in, in her face a, a number of years ago. And it turned out what that was about was that she woke up and started to feel stiffness in the back and in the knees. And from that uh, grew a whole drama of aging and a lot of suffering. Someone also from the center who uh, honestly admitted he went to buy tickets for a play and he put the money down for his tickets and the person taking the tickets said, I uh, said, oh, you, you have a, you're entitled to a, a reduced rate. <laughs> and he freaked out and insisted on paying the full rate. Okay. Okay. And it didn't turn back the hands of time. What's happening here? Let me digress for a moment, although it's not really a digression. In the Zen tradition, uh, the person uh, who's uh, credited with bringing this, these teachings to China from India was someone called Bodhidharma. Many of you have heard this story. Uh, and I'd like to give you, the, uh, the, I, I think, a key element in it because I think you'll see it's about what we're talking over tonight. He was um, met by the emperor of China. And the emperor wanted, uh, first told him um, about all of his accomplishments, all the many temples and monasteries that he had funded and how he had supplied monks and nuns with food and clothing and medical care and on and on. In other words, how he had served the Dharma. And he wanted to know how much merit he would get for that. And Bodhidharma said none. Okay, it shook him, of course. Uh, clearly, uh, there was so much me in it, so much wanting, that uh, he kind of defeated his own purpose. So then he wanted to know about the Holy Dharma. So then please tell me about the Holy Dharma. And Bodhidharma said, nothing holy, just vast emptiness. Again, puncturing a balloon, uh, which, of course, uh, he was good at. Finally, the emperor was beside himself and uh, said something like, who is it that's talking to me this way? Who are you? And Bodhidharma answered, I have no idea. Okay. Uh, now, that is a very, very profound statement. Uh, does it mean he had amnesia or a lobotomy? I don't think so. Okay. What he meant was he had, in his, in his meditative life, had come to the point where he had let go of all ideas about himself all self-images, notions, conclusions, scenarios, the story of me and my life, which we're endlessly caught up in. He had no idea. That's looked at from another angle as clear mind. Just clear mind. It's true mind, original mind, original nature, emptiness. No mind. There are a lot of words for it. Uh, when it's sustained and deep enough, it can be called nirvana or awakening. Um, and our practice is going in that direction. Is that what you want? Do you want to be able to someday answer you have no idea as to who you are? Okay. If we back up now 
and take a look of the a look at these four uh, four people, three of whom are from the center, just ordinary people, myself and the other three that I mentioned. Uh, what happened there? What's going on? And for those of you who are uh, who are students of the of the Buddha's teaching, uh, perhaps already in these four talks, what you're realizing that what I'm talking about all the time really is something uh, very ordinary uh, and very central to the Buddhist teaching. It's the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths is uh, at least one teaching that all Buddhist schools agree on. There's quite a bit of variation in terms of technique, style, method, flavors, and even the teachings themselves. Some seem to have very little to do with what the Buddha originally said. But the Four Noble Truths is agreed upon by all. And so uh, when we started this, we were about to start this center, for example, I had the good fortune of having uh, a friend of mine uh, arrange something for me, and I got to speak to the Dalai Lama for one hour, just the two of us, and I had lots of questions. But really my main question was, we were about to start this center in the middle of Cambridge. And I asked him if he was familiar with Harvard Square and Cambridge, and he had some familiarity with it. I said, but have you ever seen the bulletin boards? So he said, no, I haven't seen the bulletin boards. And I said, well, wherever you look are smiling faces pointing out how wonderful their teaching is, not only in Buddhism, but Hinduism, Sufism, uh, uh, yoga, astrology, macrobiotic diet, massage. Uh, the bulletin boards and one pasted on top of the other, all with smiling faces and promises for something wonderful. And even if you limit it to just the Buddhist approach, Cambridge is so rich in this sense, as well in any other sense. Uh, you want Zen? Which kind? How about Tibetan Buddhism? Okay. And so my concern was, when we started a center right here, somewhere between Harvard Square and Central Square, uh, people's minds would be very much like those bulletin boards, <coughs> because I had already had this experience. People were trying everything. It was the at a time, uh, and it's still, it's good to shop until you find what, what really is appropriate for you. And I was concerned how to teach in a, in a place where uh, it's so, uh, so complex and rich, because in most cultures it's one teaching that dominates. And shadings, of course, but it isn't as uh, complex as this, and also we're all so new at this stuff. So he paused for a while, and you know, you've seen him, uh, massaged his head, and then roared with laughter, and he said, oh, that's simple. He said, just anchor your teaching and anchor the center in the Four Noble Truths. He said, then no matter who comes to the center, um, uh, if it's a Buddhist practice, whatever it is they're talking about, or whatever the practice they're doing, it will fit into one or another of these four, four truths, or all four of them. And it was obvious, although uh, I needed to hear it from him for it to become so obvious. And that's what we've done from day one. Those of you who work with Michael and Ryan, it's the same. We, we don't keep saying for noble truth, for noble you know, we be kind of boring. But that, uh, whatever other variations exist, that's uh, our compass. And very simple, very sensible, intelligent uh, guidelines to living and to practice. I'm not going to go, it's not going to be an evening on the Four Noble Truths, but you need to know enough to know what I'm about to say or to relate to what I'm about to say.
first noble truth is uh, knowing that there is suffering in life. That is, if you're alive, there's got to be suffering. If you have a body, there's so many ways in which things can go wrong. I don't have to belabor that. It's not that I am suffering. It's phrased in an interesting way. There is suffering. In other words, when there is, to know it. It's not to keep uh, going around with a magnifying glass, obsessed with suffering. But when it's there, can you know it? Can you slip in under it and know it? Stand under it. Understand it. That's the first noble truth. And uh, if you take that on as a practice, first of all, you, it binds you, it links you to the whole human race. Because in addition to all, or independent of all the variations that we seem to be preoccupied with, in terms of height, weight, skin color, religion, uh, ethnicity, nationality, and on and on, gender, it's endless. Uh, we all are comrades in this, and if we'd only keep our eye on the ball and see this, uh, we would be a lot easier on each other. We're all in this together. Okay. Uh, so, to begin with, it's a challenge to do that. How do you do that? How do you become... And then, of course, we introduce ideas like mindfulness and awareness and being intimate uh, with your experience. And if your experience is joyful, sure, great. Be intimate with that joyfulness or peace, or love. But when it isn't, when it's suffering, we all know that we're experts at not being able to acknowledge that there is suffering in this moment for me. It's right here. We know that. We, we're uh, masters at escape, diversion, denial, postponement, and, and uh, becoming absorbed in something else to take our minds off it. The second noble truth says there's a cause to the suffering. The Buddha is often likened to a, a great world physician. First, the diagnosis, there is suffering, uh, the, condi- the illness rather, then the cause, the diagnosis, which is uh, craving and attachment. That is, there's a strong tendency in the mind to want. Have you noticed that? It's not weird, it's normal. But it often can become obsessional and uh, ferocious and fixated uh, and without much wisdom without understanding the consequences of such deep and intense wanting. Wanting beautiful sights and sounds and tastes. Wanting to become something better than what you think you are. Wanting to rid ourselves of what we think is no good in ourselves or in others. Wanting, wanting. And it's a craving and an attachment, upadana, very important term. Uh, So the suffering comes about because of that in this in this teaching. Uh, the third noble truth uh, is a positive outcome. It's not a dreary approach because what the Buddha is saying is that there is cessation. That is, there, an, there is an end to suffering. The way I'm using the term is not an end to pain, but an end to suffering. I've been in these talks, you know, I've made a distinction between pain. There can be physical pain or even emotional pain, but not necessarily torment. So the Buddha is saying there is cessation, that is, but you have to apply the medicine. You can't just read about the medicine. Or the Buddha, if you take a prescription and uh, just uh, frame it and put it on your wall and bow down to it three times a day and light incense and get all teary-eyed, the prescription doesn't do anything for you. You have to not go to the, you have to go to the health food store and get herbs or 
or we'll try not to be so biased, or the pharmacy, and get, get what you need. Uh, and that's the path. The medicine is the path, the Eightfold Path. That path, uh, to summarize it very quickly, has to do with ethical training, uh, put in more ordinary language to get our life in order, to take a look at how we're living, and in, if there are ways in which we're messing up, to start correcting it, to start to see it and to learn and to correct it. A training and stability of mind, or concentration, samadhi, first one is called sila. We take the five precepts here, and that's part of it. And finally, the last one is insight, vipassana, wisdom, understanding. Okay. Let's back up now. Let's take, uh, oh, the stiffness. The person who came in and said, uh, my knee is very stiff, my back is stiff, and out of that came a lot of, de- uh, of sadness and depression. Now, in the actual exchange between myself and this person, I'm not making this up as best as I can recall. What the stiffness led to, in other words, the event was really basically over, so we had to reconstruct it. Uh, What came out of it was a sense of aging, and before you know it, this person who's in her, I would say, early to middle 40s, before you know it, uh, she was uh, getting older by the moment as we talked, and was almost in a nursing home. Uh, with a walker, uh, or else out on the street with no money, no friends, abandoned. And it was just uh, an incredibly bleak scenario. Uh, And I had to remind her, all that's happened is that your knee is stiff. You know, how do we get from the knee to, can you spare some change in Harvard Square? (laughs) How do we we make that leap? Okay. It's called delusion. Now, uh, if Bodhidharma had no idea, this person had plenty of ideas about who she was to begin with, and then the modification of that once uh, stiffness uh, set in. Now, if we look at it from the point of view of the first noble truth, there was definitely suffering, of course. Person, there was anxiety, there was sadness, you would say depression. Uh, What caused it? very clearly a craving to be young forever. If you want to push hard enough, I don't think you have to push too hard. She more or less said it. An aversion to aging, a, a wanting to, uh, to just be this way, the way she was. Let's say to maintain a relative degree of youth, to not only not age, but to never get sick, because by extension, we know where this train is heading, right? The aging, that is. Some of you are quite young. This must seem uh, like, what the heck is he bothering us with all this stuff? (laughs) But uh, you're just me, just a little bit earlier on in the game, that's all. Take a look at me. It's you. You two up there. It's you. You didn't think you looked this way with glasses. You don't have glasses yet. You will. You'll have them. And, of course, death. Uh... How can the practice help? Well, first off, uh, wisdom is discernment. That is, when now this is already over. This event is over, and I'm using it so that we can learn from it. And we were able to reconstruct it, and that's useful too. Sometimes when something's over, if you can go back over it and understand 
how you assembled that? How did you put that together? What, how did you, uh, what did you have to do to be in such bad shape in that moment? And as you practice, and you need a few elementary terms to help you, but not too many. Okay, now, if we could rerun this, you know, have a, like, a, it's a, run it backwards, and only now this person remembers to use the practice because she was a yogi, she was a practitioner. But of course, when these things happen, uh, it's so clear that we're overwhelmed and we don't, the last thing we want to do is be mindful. And that's part of why we come to places like this. You know, my job is more like a coach, you know, to just keep drumming it into your head. I've had people drum it into my head. I have to drum it into my own head. Uh, until, and by, by doing, by doing little by little, like anything else that we learn, it becomes quite natural because we see the value of it, not as a new ideology, but as a sane and intelligent way to live. So uh, what might have happened is that person could have directed attention once, the, let's say there's a stiff knee. Now, as many of you have been practicing for a while, I see some familiar faces, you know that a good part of our practice includes being mindful to the sensations in the body. And so there would, there would be stiffness. Now, if the mindfulness was right there with the stiffness, often what happens is the mind doesn't proliferate. It doesn't start thinking about anything else if the attention is very, very steady and continuous. There's no, it's not that you're suppressing anything. There is no room for the thinking mind to jump in. If your attention wavers for a second or two, it comes pouring in like the ocean through an open porthole out, in, out at sea. And before you know it, you're... But let's say, for most of us, uh, there's the stiffness, and then what starts to happen is the mind starts cooking. And it starts telling you uh, what that is all about. Well, with practice, this is where what is called satipanya, mindfulness with discernment, that is wise attention, is another way to look at it. That is, the mindfulness, with some practice, uh, can actually see what's happening. You see it happening in you as it's happening, and you see that you feel the stiffness, and then you can experience the mind starting to um, tell its story, and to build on the story, and to nourish it, and, before you, and throw logs on the fire, and before you know it, you have a full-fledged drama. Okay. So awareness can intervene and see that. Now, if it does, and it sees the nature, it sees that these are just thoughts. They're thoughts about a future. They're uh, disabling thoughts about the present. They're fears, and that the fears are strong sensations in the body accompanied by disabling thoughts. And you see all that, and um, it's possible to lay it to rest. Okay. Uh, some of you who are newer may be looking, maybe some of you aren't, may think, yeah, right, sure. Uh, you can, but you have to be, and this is what I meant, uh, the remarks here are, are really quite, they're earmarked to people who actually practice or who are considering the possibility of practice. If your mind... Uh, has no stability at all, if it has very little. There's no calmness, there's no steadiness. And most minds, every mind that I've met when it starts, even if you have a highly responsible, concentrated job in life, and you're a very successful, effective person, 
and I've seen by now thousands of people, really. It doesn't seem to matter. When it, when it comes to looking at ourselves, all of that's out the window. And the mind is just wild. So, Mr. Brain Surgeon, or Mr. President of the United States, or whoever you... So the path, the medicine, is just to uh, hint at it. If you're interested, you, you know, this is in almost every Buddhist book, the Eightfold Path. First of all would be the ability of the mind to be steady. Second of all, you would have to have the energy or the effort to direct the mind to what's happening. You would have to have enough uh, right intention for the mind to understand that there's a real, really good reason to turn your attention to the suffering. I don't think we've been educated to do that. I'm pretty sure of that. We've, in fact, what it turns out is that our education and conditioning is more than many ways to get away from the suffering as fast as possible. Now, if you can, if there's a pain and there's a medicine, of course take it. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is unnecessary suffering. And that comes about through an unexamined mind. It comes about because we don't understand ourselves. The human race doesn't. It's painfully obvious. Just look around. I don't mean just this room. Okay, so uh, here are some of the qualities of mind that we would need. We'd need a mind that is um, oriented, inclined towards being in the present moment, uh, that understands the value of being in the present moment, independent of what that present moment is, is made up of. And as, if you've done this practice, you know that the mind loves to be with uh, calm and peace and happy stuff, and it hates it when there's pain and discomfort and boredom and restlessness. It just, give me a technique to get rid of it, is typically what the questions are about in, in, on retreats. And there are techniques, but inevitably you have to, there's a day of reckoning. You can't technique your way out of this one. You know, finally, you've got to face yourself. And... Uh, if you start doing it, perhaps you'll see that this is tremendously intelligent and valuable. Okay? So there's some wisdom, right understanding. Now the mindfulness is that capacity to be able to see what's going on. The, the, the steadiness of mind holds your attention on what it is you're attending to. The mindfulness can start uh, seeing clearly the features of, in this case, suffering, fear, whatever is going on in the body, very powerful sensations, in addition to the stiffness, which come about when we, get, when we become afraid. Okay. And uh, if the path can be somewhat developed that way, and that's what we're doing here, then what can happen is cessation can happen. That is, even if we don't catch it right away, the, legs, the knees are stiff, the back is stiff, the mind begins to churn out thoughts about this, but attention meets it. And attention, as some of you know, can become like a flame. And it just burns away whatever gets in front of it. It sees the empty, impermanent nature of it. And uh, you don't attach to it and turn it into self. Now clearly what this person did was identified with the stiffness. What, what is it that's... Who, who's identifying with the stiffness? Me. This is my stiffness. In short, and those of you who are well, if you really knew, you will certainly hear this many, many times. The notion of not-self. 
the Buddha is suggesting that there isn't an enduring, solid entity that's called the self, although it certainly seems like it. It's awfully convincing. But when you actually look at your mind over and over again, you begin to see it's a process of constant change. And there's nothing you can point to and say, this is who I really am, because it's gone. And maybe something <coughs> quite contradictory comes up or different. And uh, it's not an, an ideology for you to believe in. It's something for you to learn firsthand for yourself. And you begin to see uh, the nature of personal identity. Okay. Uh, when Bodhidharma says, I have no idea who I am, what he's saying is, he's gotten out of the business of constructing notions and images about who he is. Rather than doing that, he just is. In other words, he's living from presence, from absolute presence, where, uh, and this is referred to as your true nature, or your original nature. Uh, even if you have a little bit of a taste of it, you know that you're just dramatically more alive when the mind is that way. What we think of as being ourselves are representations in the mind. You know what I mean by a representation? I mean, I, I know you know the word. Let's say if you graduate, there's a photograph of you with your cap, right? And rosy cheeks and nice pearly white teeth, and it's placed on the piano. And it's, there's a copy in, in your family members' wallets, and you have one. Okay. And that's like uh, a, a fleeting second of your life, not even. And it's frozen, maybe doctored up a little by you know, a studio photographer. And that's a representation of you. It's not you. Right? I mean, it's just a representation. Okay. I remember uh, when we used to go to the movies some years ago, they would, this was before TV, uh, there would be four or five scenes from the movie trying to get you to come in. And of course, they were hardly representative of what you would then eventually come and see, like any coming attractions now. Okay. They were representations. Okay. So the mind is doing that a lot. It keeps representing itself to itself. You know. It makes up a picture, I'm this, I used to be that, but now I'm this. If I do lots of meditation, I'll become a super-duper this. And images, some of them unexamined, you don't find out you have them until there's a collision course sometimes. You don't realize what you're holding on to. It can be quite fulfilling to have an image of yourself, especially if you get a nice juicy one. It has high self-esteem in it, where it's attractive, and uh, it includes modes of dress and deportment, and... Uh, an identity, and uh, even if no one else recognizes it, you do. I'm a, this kind of a person. Okay. But the great teacher in life, as far as I can tell, is life itself. There are many uh, reflections and guided meditations that are really helpful about aging, sickness, and death, but in my own personal experience, this is not to set them off against each other, they're valuable. But in my own personal experiences, the, the deepest learning has come uh, not from uh, cultivated meditations, the formal ones, but actually from uh, life itself. If you want to learn about aging, sickness, and death, uh, you don't need too many methods. You just have to have a willingness uh, to be open to the lessons that life is teaching us. Okay. Um, so, the Four Noble Truths are saying that it's possible, if you have a practice, 
to intervene and see how you create suffering for yourself out of the materials of your life in that moment. The materials could be a stiff knee. The materials could be someone getting up and giving, giving you their seat on a tee. The materials could be offering you a reduction in, in the price of a theater ticket. The theory, the, it could be uh, politeness and consideration, ma'am, a word, the word ma'am. These are all positive gestures as far as I can tell. Why, do, why, don't they, why didn't they make up myself and all these other people really happy? Isn't it a lovely world? People getting up, giving us seats and uh, chopping money off the ticket and uh, so polite to us and, well, maybe not the, the stiffness. <laughs> okay. uh, but no. So what we tend to do is what one word that I think is helpful is called selfing. We tend to turn what happens to us in life into the materials out of which we construct and protect a sense of self. But when you look closely at that, it's a representation, either in words or in pictures. Test it. See if it's so. In meditation, when meditation starts cooking, all of these representations fall away. They don't stand up. You look at it, it's like a shooting gallery, you know, those shooting park, amusement park galleries. Not that you're trying to shoot anything down, but they're just images. They're rather flimsy. They're empty of any real substance. They're not self. And you see it from your own learning. I hope some of you have seen some of that. Uh, as you more and more start living not from a place of uh, I am the body, for example, which is crucial to what we're talking about this evening, and start living from the place of clear mind, or the silent mind, whatever language you like, presence. In that moment, you are fully alive, but you're not turning yourself into an object with some thought or some picture that I'm this or that. Now, we do do it to ourselves, and we do it to each other. And yet, we crave intimacy. We don't have it because we're not seeing each other in a fresh way from moment to moment. Okay. Um, Some of what we're saying tonight about this aging, it's a law of nature that the body must change. That is, if you're going to be alive, just, just living, the body must age. Uh, it's not negotiable. If you don't want your body to age, then don't get born. Because once you get born, then everything flows out of that. Uh, just, or else it's like wanting a waterfall to flow upwards. It doesn't. It flows downwards. Or why should I get wet from the rain? Why can't it touch me and I remain dry? Because that's what rain does. Okay, so to be born is to age, etc. All of that happens. The problem is uh, we have this fierce identification with the body. I am the body. That's a notion. I am this body. And as you know, a good deal of the teachings of the Buddha uh, are designed to short-circuit that idea, to help you see through it and not be uh, uh, enslaved by it. Because if you attach to the body as being you, it's a bumpy ride. Because the body is going to go through changes. Now, I don't mean to minimize the problems of aging. You know, sort of like, oh, just be mindful and uh, see that your knee is stiff and ho, 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 everything is all set. 
because some of what comes along with aging can be a, a loss of capacity for all of us, in some cases dramatic. We don't, we're not as strong. We don't have as much energy. Certain organs don't work as well. We can't see as well, hear as well. We become less attractive, and if attractive is extremely important to you, uh, the beauty will fade. The physical body uh, will run out of energy. Now, there's great variation in this. Some people are in pretty good shape right to the end, but there's only one direction. And if you have an identity that you're forging out of the body, out of the materials of the body, being handsome, beautiful, or, or not handsome or beautiful, you can go either way. They're both, from the point of view of Dharma, uh, forms of suffering or traps. This idea of I am the body. So it's not to neglect the body, but it's to fully appreciate that there is this body and, of course, to care for it. Including, you can dress it well and adorn it and keep it clean and even enjoy it. But if you get fixated on it and identify with it as being you, then please don't be surprised if you're going to feel terrible as you see the body more and more unable to do what it used to be able to do. You start comparing yourself with younger people, resenting them. You start feeling bypassed, not loved anymore, kicked around, not respected. I think you understand. I mean, I, there's silence and there's silence. I just heard a slip into a different silence. Good. Good. That, that's what this is about. It's to wake up. This isn't a transmission of information to be written down in a notebook and then to get graded on it, to test it on. It's uh, for all of us uh, to wake up and to practice. It's what the Buddha called Samvega. Uh, Samvega, uh, roughly, it's a very rich concept, but what it has to do with is um, in coming to see the uh, fragile quality of life, to see how uncertain and, fra and fragile it is. And it's easily those, don't you think? It's uncertain, it's fragile, it's perishable. We don't know what's going to happen to it, to this body, let's say. Uh, what that can do is awaken a tremendous interest in spiritual life. Uh, it can get you to reorient your values dramatically so that your values start more and more to have to do with inner work in addition to whatever else you're doing. And I'd like to go to that in a moment. So Samvega can be a tremendously uh, powerful motivator. It's not just limited to old fogies. Young people need help too. Because if you're right now young and your body works pretty well and you have lots of energy and can, don't need much sleep and you can skip meals and you know, do all the things, get off and on trains and planes and uh, have a, just still great. I can still remember doing that. Okay. Uh, what can come along with that can be a certain subtle, arrogance may be too strong a word, but uh, a delusion that somehow you have that forever. And also kinds of action that turn out to be lacking in wisdom and compassion <clears throat> because of the blindness, being infatuated with your own energy and not uh, realizing that you have this capacity for a while. Make good use of it, sure. Enjoy your youth. But 
young people can wake up too. In fact, the sooner you wake up, the better. Okay. Now, practices like this, just words that are kind of putting something on your mind that perhaps normally you don't get put on your mind, or at least not this way, uh, are intended to motivate you to practice. And we do different kinds of practices. Some are reflections. For example, uh, the Buddha put out one. Uh, I'm of the nature to age. Uh, Aging is inevitable. Just to reflect on that thought. It's a simple thought. You turn it over in your mind, and if your mind is very concentrated and quiet, and you take it inside, uh, the thoughts can take you into quite a deep place, and they can be very rich. To help you understand, oh, I see. So that's what is called a reflection. There are visualizations, there are techniques that are visualizations. The Buddha at one point had a, an extremely, uh, one queen was extremely vain, very beautiful and vain, had no interest in the Dharma whatsoever, and, but came to the talks anyway, was inattentive and all the rest. And the Buddha at one point, I don't know if it's true or not, but he had psychic powers and he got her to see a beautiful woman going through all the phases of life from beauty to aging to the different shape of the body and the face until finally uh, falling over dead. And this woman became a nun. Her name was Kema. Uh, She became uh, highly enlightened, uh, dropped all this queen stuff. This person who had leprosy was on the fringe of the talks of the Buddha. You know, he was too ashamed to come in close. And the Buddha gave him teaching of the Four Noble Truths, just what we've been talking about tonight. But of course, a good deal more challenging than just stiff knee or someone getting up on the tee. I'm picking intentionally relatively trivial things to show you that it's everywhere. The big stuff is obvious. And uh, this leper transcended his leprosy and attained awakening. Okay. Uh, doing meditations of this sort or reflections of this sort, when I say the meditations, what I'm really emphasizing is what we emphasized here, the direct perception of what's happening to you, mindfulness in the moment. But there are other things that are useful, like visualizations. There are, we can't go into it tonight, but there are some visualizations which simulate, which approximate something that isn't really happening to you, but kind of, it's a bit like a dress rehearsal. You rehearse what it might be like to be dying. Those are visualizations. You can do it, or someone can guide you through it, and it can be helpful. The direct perception of life itself. This body is changing. We have no control over this. The outer world is constantly changing. The body is changing, and the mind is changing, and it's completely out of our hands. Have you ever stopped to think of that? We can help it along a little bit, you know, feed it properly, give it exercise, etc. But uh, the direction is still the same. Okay. Uh, so Samvega can help you appreciate. Uh, reorient your values so that you change your priorities. Uh, it can also, it's not all bad news. In fact, the title of these talks, Shining the Light of Death on Life, what that's implying is uh, one of the beautiful things that com- can come out of meditation on themes like this is you realize that you don't have forever. And sometimes at first people become very frantic or even depressed. But really what uh, it's more directed towards and can happen, I've seen it enough times, is for you to realize how precious life is. 
and so that the people in your life, you see them. And uh, impermanence is not all bad news. Uh, it wakes you up. It wakes you up that you don't have forever. And if there are people in your li- life who you love, love them. You know, and if there's something that's unresolved, resolve it. And if there's something you've wanted to do but have been postponing for the last 10 years, do it. So it's not just rarefied, highfalutin, spiritual vipassana meditation. Some of it's quite ordinary. It just gets you to appreciate the sound of birds and the beauties of nature and just the most ordinary thing, a cup of coffee and a bagel, anything. Just that you can walk, just that you can hear, just that you can see right now. Uh, So that's what it's about. Now, of course, Finally, if you start to practice, and this can kind of light a fire under our bun, so that we do practice, uh, some fruit can come from practice, and that's the most reliable motivator in my experience. Not fear of death or fear of aging, but just the joy that comes out of practice, uh, the sanity of it all, so that you want to do it because, I mean, no one has to give you a workshop or send you away to Barry for, for three months to learn to appreciate eating. Maybe some people, if you have an eating disorder, but most of us, when time comes for lunch, we go right to it. We don't need to be, you know, give a, go to Interface, I hear it's starting up again, and be given a workshop on, uh, the eating is really good, it, it tastes good, and uh, you can have the foods you like. We want to do it. Or go to the movies, if that's what you love. Well, meditation can, can do that as you start to uh, experience it, but it has to flower, which means you have to flower from it. And when you do, then you don't have to listen to people like me, at least not so much. You don't need it. Uh, you already know inside, you become a light unto yourself, which is what the Buddha talked about over and over again. The point is for you to become a light unto yourself. No one can light your lamp. I can tell you that there is a lamp, and that it's worth looking, and that if you take a look at what's happening, including aging, sickness, and death, it's not our actual death, It's the fact that we're worried about it. If you can do that, there's, uh, there's a, there, it will enable you to flower as a human being, because these three stations in life, or challenges, let's call them, we all age, we all must get sick, we all must die. What could be more in our face than that? I mean, it's so intimate. It's so much a part of every human being's experience. And what could we be pushing away more than those three? We really don't like the news that we must age and, and get sick and die. And so practice is trying to uh, reorient us. This is practice in general. Practice in general, and you've heard this over and over again, is learning how to be in the present moment. So it's nothing new. All I'm saying is, can you be in the present moment when the suffering is due to the fact that you're terrified of, uh, of aging? Right? This evening we're talking about aging. We'll start on illness next week or next time. Okay, let's get back to Bodhidharma. You know, <clears throat> I don't know if you have, I, I have a hunch that everyone in this room, or most of you, have met elderly people uh, who age gracefully. I have. I've met people, they never heard of meditation. They could care less. And uh, they still get a kick out of life. Uh, they take care of themselves. They still have a lot of love for people. They have things that they enjoy doing, and so forth. Uh, they, they would never 
think of hitting the cushion or coming to this joint. Okay. So there are some people who are balanced and sensible. Uh, they are more attuned to the ways of nature. They can accept the fact that they lose some of their capacities, some of their skills, some of their physical beauty. It's not the end of the world. They actually find that there are other kinds of joys that come with aging. There really are. There are different kinds. If you don't compare yourself uh, to someone who's 19 and stays up for two weeks without sleeping, you know, uh, some of the small things that drive you crazy when you're young fall away naturally. Whew, what a relief. So there's some, there's some uh, uh, redeeming uh, features in aging. You really have seen a lot before, and you just don't do so many stupid things. And okay, you can't run as fast, so what? Okay. But you have to really feel that, that it's, it's okay. When I could run fast, I did, and it was great. And now I can't, so I'll just walk. Okay. Uh, so there are people who do have that. They perhaps have taken reasonable care of themselves so that the, their physical condition uh, is not so deteriorated. Although I've met extraordinarily happy people who are uh, in conditions that are unbelievable. I mean, in hospitals. Uh, I don't know how they uh, could be so happy, but they are. How did they get there? And not with meditation. Okay. So it's clear that some people, who knows what, uh, had a good upbringing, uh, good conditions, some good breaks in life, and made use of it, uh, understanding, and uh, learned to appreciate the small things that they can do, rather than dwelling on what they can't do. Uh, the Buddha would often do that. If someone was very discouraged, he would say, um, can you hear me? And the person would say, yes, I can. And he'd say, well, there are many people who can't. Can you walk? Of course I can walk. Don't you see? I just walked here. There are thousands of people who can't walk. And whatever it is, we all have disabilities of some kind. But Dharma is going beyond that. It's going well beyond that. Uh, now, I, don't mind, I can't make an absolute statement. For all I know, that I, I knew a, a, long before I got interested in this, thing, in this stuff, I knew a, an old Mexican man who had everything wrong with him his whole life. Uh, he had a lot of problems. He couldn't see. Uh, he couldn't walk. He never left his village for his entire life. And we all loved being with him. Why was that? He had so much wisdom and such a good sense of humor. And he was the happiest person in the village and happier than us. Uh, what did he know that we didn't know? Okay, so maybe some of those people are as in wonderful a place as human <laughs> beings could get. But probably most of them are doing fine. And yet, uh, awakening is something even deeper than that. Uh, it's coming to that in us which is beyond birth and death. That is, we talk a great deal at this center, and I assume at all, in most spiritual places, about impermanence, things coming and going, changing, and so forth. Uh, is there anything that uh, isn't impermanent? I don't mean the opposite of impermanent, but something that has nothing to do with uh, ending because it never began. It just is. And what the teachings are saying is very clearly and definitely yes. In this tradition, it's sometimes called the deathless or the unconditioned. But you get there through the conditioned. In other words, you, 
to use an image that is just evocative, I don't know how helpful it will be, it would be as if a wave uh, looked deeply into its wave-like nature and finally saw that it's the ocean. So it's oceanic, that all waves are the same, really. It's all just water. If, you, if it's preoccupied with being a wave, it's terrified. It sees bigger waves on the right, bigger ones on the left. It sees waves who are ahead of it crashing into the beach and disappearing. It looks in back of it and there are younger waves coming who are bigger. <laughs> and then one wave is wise and comes over and says, hey, you jerk. It's all water. Just look into yourself. In that place, we're all the same. When we're thinking feverishly, your mind, I mean you collectively, and my mind, it's different. I don't know what you brought here with your mind. I brought something with my mind. But when your mind and my mind are not thinking, when your mind is thinking and my mind is thinking, we're quite different from each other on that level. When your mind stops thinking and my mind stops thinking, there's no difference. So, in an investigation into realms like impermanence, realms, uh, just an expression of impermanence is aging. It's all it is. So in your just ordinary daily practice, when you're seeing impermanence in the, in the breath, in the body, in mind states, you're learning how to age and, and how to die, even though you don't, we don't call it that. In the process of more and more uh, becoming attuned to the impermanent nature of the mind-body process, as you more and more are able to with some continuity and depth, see it arise and pass away, see it arise and pass away. And empty this mind-body process, remove the sense of me and mine from everything that's happening. That starts to fall away a little bit at a time. You notice how we make self out of everything. It's as if the entire universe is just about me, all day long obsessed with ourselves. How am I? Am I pretty enough, handsome enough, intelligent enough? You know, listen to your mind and see if it's true. Okay, so what if through seeing uh, we start to get on to ourselves and we get to know ourselves, what tends to happen, I won't say tends to happen, what happens is the mind begins to empty itself of its own content. So that this arising and passing away, when seen clearly, takes you to what I, I think we could perhaps call sacred. But any word... You know, I, the word sacred is not useless. I mean, it's been besmirched so much, cheapened. But I think perhaps there is something sacred, uh, something untouched by culture, by history, by all of the things that we are so preoccupied with. And all of us have access to it. Now, it's the energy that's in aging, that's in sickness to get ahead of ourselves a bit, and in, de and in, in dying, if that energy, which is frozen and very condensed, because we're so identified with it as being me and mine, if that energy through insight is dissolved, that energy is released. What was sort of frozen energy is released, and you have access to it now. And it can just uh, take you deeper and deeper. So in, in this sense, uh, the bigger the suffering, the more energy that's trapped in it and if you can come to terms with that suffering, it's a tremendous gift. And that's what Ajahn Lee means. He's saying if we understood that aging sickness and death, what a gem it is, and if it were personified, we'd bow down to it every day. What he's saying is if we properly understand that although the body must age, it must 
from time to time get sick and it must die. It's not true of the mind. Pure mind. Okay. Um, let's take a very short break. Those of you who would like to leave, fine. Uh, let me add that if you decide to stay, but you know you can't stay too long, it's, I won't consider it rude if you have to get up and leave You know, in a few minutes. It's fine. Leave whenever you want to. Okay, but in the meantime, uh, those of you who would like to go upstairs and start having some tea, please do. Most of all, because it's, uh, it's you. I'm learning. It's not some you know, blah, blah, blah. It's your real life. The practice has given you more energy? Well, no, the, like, let's just say I'm a high, if I'm out of balance, it's high energy, low concentration. And, um, you know, which can get in the way of, you know, exactly what technique you're using, too, if you keep moving around. Um, you know, and a lot of insecurity, perhaps, is the thing that comes up the most. Like, insecurity about what? Um, actually, the, the best description I've read, I think I read it in your book, someone who looks into the eyes of others to see how they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so like in real close relationships. Yeah. Insecurity. And, you know, that's like a predominant thing coming up. You know, maybe a lot of the panic and things like that have subsided, but there's still that insecurity. Yeah. Okay. How would you relate that to what we're talking about? How to practice with yeah, it? Yeah. What is the pra- you know? Is there a practice that's like that's yes. suited to that? Yes, but you you it'll be it's going to be a disappointment when I tell you. Okay. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, actually. Uh, let's say you have uh, insecurity of some kind, and probably all of us experience this. And then maybe some teacher or coach or parent or relative pushes you in. Just try it. Do it, and you do okay, and you feel better about yourself. You, you go to graduate school, or you, you try to learn how to play tennis, or you take up a musical instrument, and throughout life, there are these possibilities of trying to do things, and then we find out it isn't so bad, and we feel better about ourselves. But in my own experience, what helps most of all with insecurity, by all means do that, jump in and live, you know, and learn from that, is we're in a hurry, you see, we, insecurity, what you're calling insecurity, I have to use the word, but it's pointing at, it's real for you, you feel it, right, in the body, and emotionally and so forth. Um, it's a problem. We think of it as a problem. What it is, when you look at it clearly, it's a fact. Okay? And we turn it into a problem, and then we, uh, this is what in the, in, the, in the Buddha's language is craving to become. So we want to become someone who's very secure. So there's a conflict. I'm insecure, I don't like it, and I want to become secure. And so maybe we see somebody who's secure, and we see how they walk with a nice posture and, you know, uh, and they smile readily and then we start uh, doing an impersonation, you know, of that. Uh, and so then we wonder, how come I don't have any friends? You know, everyone runs away from us. 
Um, in short, we try to become uh, secure. Okay. The practice is saying, don't be insecure about the fact that you're insecure. It's okay. You know, it's okay. In other words, insecurity is part of the human condition. You know, finally, if you go deep enough, most of us have some level of insecurity about something. Okay. I think it's a rare one who's finished. No more insecurity. Okay. Uh, so what the challenge is, is not so much to get a new technique. By all means, use metta and so forth. It'll help you. But is when what you're calling insecurity comes up, learn how to relate to it, how to approach it in an entirely new way. Not with, uh, in parenthesis, I'm being mindful of you in order that you go away or become security. You know, If you have any agenda, then it's not going to be, the power of mindfulness will be diluted. So it has to be just clear seeing. It has to be just inner seeing, is what I'm talking about. So that the mindfulness has no goal, no motive, other than the seeing itself. Well, to begin with, that's not so easy to do, because the insecurity comes up and you, and, uh, you don't like it. Okay. So then you don't really look at the insecurity, you look at the resistance to it, where you see a tremendous urge to get away from it, to uh, sink your head into a book, or to start eating, or to run to a movie, or whatever it is. And so it's not that you have to um, force yourself into the insecurity. Start approaching it gently and in a friendly way. After all, it's all you. The awareness is you, the breath is you, what you're calling insecurity. It's a one-man act. I don't know if that's hit you yet. It's all you. You're doing it to yourself. Okay. So, now, granted, you know, something set this in motion. You've had some wounds and traumas, all of us. Okay. But finally, you can't keep going back to that all the time because here you are. Okay. This is it, is what I, you know, this is, you know, people want to know about spiritual life. This is it. You know, right here, this is it. And when you're insecure, that's it. In this practice, we work with such humdrum, ordinary materials. We don't visualize ourselves glowing, you know, on, uh, way up beyond the clouds, smiling like a Buddha, you know, with tears of compassion dripping down. We look at our insecurity. Okay. Now, to do that's an art. So at first, you'll fall down. And you will uh, look at it with a calculating mind and this and that. But the day will come where, where you can uh, open your heart to yourself and admit it in and as an energy. It's not even cultivating acceptance, which is still a bit of a, a thing, a trip. It's more what you're calling insecurity is energy. You know, you're feeling it in the body when it, when it comes up. I, you have to use a word. Okay? So can you uh, allow that energy to be exactly what it is, the energy of insecurity? This energy is called insecurity, but throw the word out, because that's uh, insecurity has a bad press. You know, it'll just make it worse. Oh, I'm insecure right now. It can. Okay. So, and just be with that energy. Allow it to flower. Allow it to tell its story, and allow it to go away. And little by little, the insecurity starts to weaken uh, and have less power over you. And you'll find that you're just because the insecurity is not there. Something else uh, replaces it. It's not just a vacuum. And you'll find that things are easier for you to do. It's easier to be with people. It's easier to take on challenges that maybe you don't have, you're not sure of, and so forth. So it's not that there's any one magical thing, but whatever else you do, if you don't do this personally, uh, I think it will come back to haunt you one way or another. I don't think we can escape from our stuff. Once you start tasting silence, big time, really taste it, the silent mind, that has a tremendously healing power. 
But in order to get there, you can't want, you can't aim for a silent mind because that's an idea. It's not, it's not. Uh, the silence is the most healing thing that we have. In other words, one, to enter into it, to dwell in it, to allow it to work on us. Okay, but you get to the silence by learning to make peace with yourself as you are. So that would be, uh, and all the other things that you know from practice, let them help you do this. Do, do the words make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's at a point where, I think one thing you put your finger on was aiming for the silence, perhaps when I'm sitting, and um, that may be being, you know, problem, definitely being problematic. And it's, it's, it has come to a point where it's like, now I have risked opening myself up to certain people. Mm-hmm. And what starts happening is, it's generally rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, insecurity is a difficult thing because I think if so. you're angry, people will control you over anger. If you're insecure, it's really the toughest thing because you really are left to yourself to deal with it because people are like, you know, I understand. take your insecurity somewhere else. And um, so, you know, it's in close relationships and, and the mind just starts going. And that's where like that kind of obsession, you know, it's, it's difficult to get the mind out of gear. And, um, you know, is that, is any of it uh, have to do with aging? Well, what, what's actually, that side? I've made some progress with that. It, yeah. it, it certainly at, at one point that was very very uh, strong. You know, like the eight, certain aches and pains I had, you know, for a long time, I've started to uh, get to a place of peace with those. <laughs> you know, so I guess it's just a fear of ending up alone and you know dying perhaps. You know, alone. Or Okay, now, so that's a scenario, that's, your, that's an imagining. Right. Yeah. And if you identify with that, if you make dying alone, then, you know, then you may, may as well. Right. You know, because you're there already. You don't have to wait till you get old. You know, you're just already doing it to yourself. So that's delusion. Insight is seeing into it, seeing what it is. It's just the mind fabricating. You know, it's uh, fashioning something. The mind is a great theater. You don't have to go to the movies. It's just fantastic. And it's just making up a... Now, you can learn from it, like there's sometimes intelligence in it, which is sort of like, I don't want to die alone, lonely, and so forth. And if there's ways in which you're living that might be contributing to that, then start examining it, you know, and and find out why, because the seeds are here in the present, why uh, why your living is not uh, fulfilling enough. Uh, I would say our practice, one way of looking at it <clears throat> in regard to what we're, we're dealing with in, in this series of talks is we're, it's learning how to live and to die. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to age. It's not anyone's particular problem. We, that isn't part of our education. Uh, maybe it's not part of anyone's education anywhere on the planet. There have always been selected groups that have understood this, whether you call it spiritual or not. They have. Uh, but all too often they've been special and had nothing to do with the rest of us. Uh, whereas what I'm saying tonight can be seen as a form of re-education. You're learning how to, how to relate in a new way, how to approach, let's say, the aging process, which is inevitable, uh, using the tools of meditation and the understandings. But essentially, it's helping you learn how to live, how to age uh, gracefully and so forth. So that's a good, uh, substantial kind of practice to do. Is it easy? No, but it can be done. Yeah. Do you feel discouraged? Um, I, actually, when I was listening to you, um, it's, yeah, it's a point of, 
frustration perhaps in that you know at times my mind does settle down beautifully you know mm -hmm. and, and there is that le you know some level of the satipana that goes on where I can actually observe what's going on it's that you know rejection from people closest to me just kicks it in there's this frustration like oh there it goes again you know and, and I start struggling with it yeah, uh, of course, uh, finally, the, the core of our practice is seeing how we keep uh, creating me and mine about everything, so that uh, who is rejected here? Me, right? Okay, so it's, uh, you'll see if you trace it out and stay with it, it's our image is hurt. You know what we call the ego sometimes, it's different use of that term in, in Buddhist psychology, but um, so once you begin to see that, there may be some social skills that will grow out of this that will help you, but but the, the main thing is to start with your insecurity because as that starts to thin out and fall away a little bit, then of course it's going to be easier for, to do anything, including being with people. All of us get rejected from time to time, and maybe you haven't learned that one yet. Yeah, okay. Please. Yes. 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 Right now. Oh, yeah. This is to be done while we're alive. Fine. I'm not against rebirth. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing you could do for rebirth is to take care of your present life. Because how you live now, uh, let's say there is rebirth. Not everyone agrees with this, as you probably know. Uh, let's say there is rebirth then how you live now is going to determine what that is, what comes of that. Uh, if there's no rebirth, you're not losing anyway, because your present life will be better if you live a kinder, a wiser way. Please. I have a about youth, maturity, and practice. Youth, maturity, and practice. Okay. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. What am I not getting? And then, since then, I'm nodding a little bit more. I sort of extrapolate in that, you know, on this, and I'll be nodding the whole way through. I don't know. I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I, there's no, uh, there's no, I, 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 I've observed this very, very carefully. And now more and more younger people are coming on to practice. It used to be just uh, uh, eccentrics and hippies were drawn to all this when we first started out. And uh, deeply troubled people. I mean, 
uh, it was a uh, out, it was a, a mental hospital essentially called Buddhism. Uh, uh, more and more, uh, a wide uh, cross section of of uh, the human race is starting to be interested in these things. Okay. Um, I wouldn't want to generalize because, for example, uh, I've seen with my own eyes and from the study that I've done that there are times when. Uh, in the history of this of the Dharma, where um, people have caught on fire about the practice at age five, you know, I had a teacher. I still, she's still alive, Vimala Thakkar. She told me at age five she just ran into the forest, ran away from home looking for God, and her parents were going crazy trying to find her. And they said, "What are you doing? I just want. To, where is God? Where?" She's always had that burning desire. Now she comes from a culture where. That was in the air, let's say, India. Um, but, you know, most Indians don't do that either. Uh, and so some ch- I think you have to be very sensitive to your particular biography. If I had to make a generalization, I would have to, as long as you don't understand it, finally each person has to make up their own mind through paying attention. Uh, a lot of people who are younger who I see, and some who come here, strikes me, uh, they come sometimes because of curiosity, or it's in, or you know, it's the next thing, or their friends are doing it, or, or it's rebellion against their parents, there are all kinds of motives. But what I see is that uh, they need to be punched around by life a little bit more. Because when we start talking about not-self, uh, their passionate commitment is to building an ex- extraordinary self, you know, through all kinds of things, through degrees and love conquests and, you know, fantastic job appointments with promotions and weightlifting and, you know, winning, uh, you know, Olympic, you know, it's sort of, it's an age when it seems to uh, coincide tremendously with, and the culture loves it, you know, build that ego up. Okay. But obviously there are individuals who slip through the radar who aren't oriented that way at all. Okay. Look, when I was 15, I wanted nothing more than to be a Marine. How did I get here? I don't have any idea. The whole, the, my whole block was holding me down. You don't want to be a Marine. You know, you know it, I, I said, I want to be a Marine. It was my way of, at that time, and I didn't care what the adults were telling me was important. I just wanted uh, to be like them. You know, to have that stand smart with that outfit and, you know, the posture and, I don't know, whatever. I, I do know, but we don't have to go into all that. Uh, so. But if you have these doubts, which is what it sounds like, then explore them. But I don't think there's some magic, like if you wait 10 years, then you're really going to start ooing and aahing. Uh, but it shows that maybe uh, you feel a little weary with spiritual practice. But, but, pe- but aging and maturity are two different things. As, as you get older, you'll see it. They're, they're not necessarily related. I'm talking about, re- it, let's say, emotional maturity, but if you're talking about spiritual maturity, it's really true. There are some young people who have amazing spiritual maturity. And the fact that you've been on the planet for many years doesn't necessarily lead to maturity of any kind. It's just that you're too exhausted to be trouble anymore. <laughs> 
you know, to make problems for other people. You know, you get in your rocker and watch the TV and, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you're ne necessarily have wised up. So, I mean, there may be some, Carl, you do learn some things from living, of course. You have the opportunity to. But you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So, but why it's, it sounds too researchy to me. You know, it's like, are you in social science or something? Let the sociologists study this. Oh, good. Oh, so you're a great bodhisattva. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I think you're onto something because what I've seen is, again, not making it an absolute, but uh, a lot of the times what I see is, or they welcome part of the message. The not-self part is not welcome. You know, it's sort of like, oh, I want to, you know, it's sort of, that's not user-friendly enough. Or it's, okay, this mindfulness stuff, that's good, because I can be more alert, more sensitive, have more energy, uh, maybe be more attractive, more appealing, have less insecurity. You know, all, you know, these kinds of things. But then when you start in, but it's not about uh, high self-esteem or positive self-image going way beyond that. Uh, and no self, there isn't. Because the, 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 um, what's compelling is really, even if it's not acknowledged in an explicit way, is uh, strengthening the ego, you know, refining it, and feeling your oats in an egocentric way. I think it's, it's I'm not condemning it, it's, I'm just describing it, it's quite natural. Mm. After she died, um, and I've done, I've done, I've done reflections on death for years. When we, you know, looked at corpses and types of things, um, traditional Buddhist practices. After she died, my, I physically sort of went into shock. And part of me, it's like part of me just could not accept it. Yes. There's this, there's like this wall. I just could not accept it. And I wonder, first, if you could speak to that phenomenon. Oh, yes, I've had my own experience of it, because I did the very same thing, as you know. And it was helpful. There was uh, their contemplations, and with one of my teachers, we observed the corpse, you know, for a whole night, and it was blue and swollen and festering, and it brought up things, and the teacher would say, what, what's happening now? I feel like throwing up, and watch it, you know, be mindful, and all the same things you hear. And it was all helpful, and I did visualizations and reflections. So I've been interested in this for a while. Um, but then, uh, when my father died, uh, we were very close, uh, I had his ashes. He wanted, uh, he didn't want to be buried, he wanted to be, uh, he loved the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And so um, he and I talked about it years before, it's in his will actually, or in some paper. Uh, and so I had his ashes in an urn. And I put it on, I have an altar where I meditate, and I kept it there for, I don't know, it was about a month and a half or so. I wasn't following any religious, you know, 48 days or anything like that. I just put it there, and I was doing my regular meditations, but from time to time I would, I had a picture of him near it, and I would just look over and reflect, wait a minute, in other words, in that little box, it was about this big, is what is left of Nathan Rosenberg, at least his, the, the body. Oh, he's, he's somewhere else, you know, rebirth and all that. Hope so, maybe. I don't know. Not really. 
uh, and I would make that connection. And uh, it was very, very different than um, the dress rehearsals. They, they were all prompted, cultivated, in that sense, artificial. And they're not intimate enough. So that one thing, and again, I'm not saying don't do the Buddhist practice because they ha- have been helpful. But that's what I was trying to say, that for me personally, uh, just life as it is, is the greatest teacher there is. But you have to be uh, available. You have to be a student of it. And if you are, all that you need is there with you or people that you love. And it's very, very different, so I second what you're saying. Uh, all you can do is practice with what you're describing. Don't set up an ideal, you know, like, or a way of hurting yourself, which is sort of like, and for all this Buddhist practice, you know, and visualizations and contemplating corpses, look at this, I'm no better than just someone who never meditated. Or don't set up any ideals. The truth is, this is the way it is about you and your grandmother. Don't compare it to anything else. Be student, And just be honest from moment to moment with it, and that will really teach you things that are much more valuable than trying to think it through. Connection to your grandmother? Yeah, or holding, holding the sense that maybe she's in a bottle, she's passing out. I'm just doing daily or weekly, doing meditation to try to have some connection. Maybe it's just for me. A quality of method and passing out. Yes, I do that too. Yeah. And that just seems like a natural extension of you know, a connection with some life force that may be going on. But the other thing that I really wanted to, um, that I'm, around the whole time, it's been a couple of months. Yeah, but you know, let's say this wasn't about your, your relationship to your grandmother and her death. Right. You know as well as I do that, that the practice goes through, it's like the weather. Right. You know, uh, you really love it or you hate it or it's in between and the mind is clear and then it's wacky and then it's, so that this is what's happening. But just from my own experience, not just of myself, but having listened to others, um, look very carefully uh, because I thought I was grieving for my father like out of a textbook, you know, perfectly, okay, until I saw that I wasn't, because there was a time when I saw that there was an element of self-pity in it, which is very different. It was sort of, me, my daddy isn't here with me anymore. Uh, when I saw that and it fell away and it was just total undivided attention to grieving, it was very, very different. And the grieving is a powerful energy, and it was allowed to fully release itself, fully flower, and do its grieving, and it had no me in it. I mean, of course, not the concept me. Of course it was, I was the, there it was, it was right in here, and there was total attention to it. So there was a subtle kind of self-pity that I saw. Once I saw it, 
it fell away and the gr whole process of grieving changed. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes people get confused, mistake attachment with love, you know, like, and so uh, you can't, you keep thinking about your grandmother in certain ways because if you don't then you feel you're letting her go and you won't have her anymore, you don't love her or uh, she's, you know, leaving your clutches or uh, people have all kinds of uh, notions about what will happen if they don't feed the process and try to keep the, the person who's dead alive in their heart. Okay? Uh, love has nothing necessarily to do with that, but that's a difficult one to disentangle, attachment from love, but they're different. It doesn't feel conceptual. It doesn't feel like I'm actually what you do. I'm thinking about this person so much. I just know that the whole surround of this time, yes. these, these many weeks, that there's a disengagement in the way, and it's more wanting to have, uh, wanting to be reflect, wanting to really embrace, but not, but also be responsive and fully in the world. Okay, there, there may be a, slut, a subtle way in which you are not a, maybe depression's too strong a word, slightly subdued. And I, I would think that would be a natural. Yeah, what I think would be better personally, not anything I have to say from here on in, uh, but if you can throw away ideals about how you might be or should be or you used to be and, uh, and practice with just what you're saying and see where and let it tell its story let it unravel itself because if you keep comparing it to how you know you want to be more aware or more this and your friends are being neglected and then the mind starts speculating minds do that but if you don't feed that process instead come back to just the the raw you see what I'm getting at to me that's always the most reliable that's the heart of our practice. It's the hardest thing to learn. Hardest thing to teach, too. It's to be with what's there, right, in, right, what's here, right in this moment, right here and right now. And that varies from loving for it to be there, hating for it to be there. Well, but that's, that's where the liberation comes from that. Everything else can be helpful or, con or counterproductive. But uh, I would say teachings, Dharma talks, all these things, it's getting us more and more it's like the where, where we're hurting. That's another meaning of the that dukkha is a gem. The suffering is a gem. It's where the where the suffering is. That's where the that's the jewel. That's where the liberation is. It's not it's, liberation's not behind some cloud. It's all happening in the same place. And so if you can mm, connect with it and throw away all your notions of should be, was, and even any of my notions. Time for one more, please, and then get some. Yes, please. Uh, in dealing with similar things with some uh, losses of uh, parents and uh, a loved one in the last couple of years, uh, you were talking about that blossoming of the grieving, the grieving, just letting it happen. Uh, are there any particular meditative practices that uh, that encourage that? I mean, I have, I have seen a number of it, and, and the one that seems to have Work best for me is like an opening the heart meditation. But, uh, but I guess the question. Are, are you inclined? In other words, are you kind of priming it, guiding it, using words? Uh, sometimes, but yeah. it's just more open the heart. Let 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 the feelings in. Let them let it expand. Yeah. Rather than I'm not looking for it. It's right there. Right. Uh, but it's at times when I'm just meditating. Okay. Uh, I get drawn off to that, and I need to have some way to deal with it. Okay. Uh, uh, throw away, uh, when you said it's just there? Yeah. 
full stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.